Good afternoon, everybody, and welcome back to the Preacher's Corner. What an exciting day we have as we continue on the instruction that Jesus gives in Luke chapter number 6. Uh, we're going to be starting off going down into 38 and working our way through a couple of parables concerning blindness and also parables that, that would concern motes and beams and things of that nature. So it's going to be pretty sweet. Uh, we're just going to rejoice in what the Lord reveals through His Word and what, what God gives you. And want to thank God by beginning in a time of prayer to seek the Spirit's moving in our hearts as He leads us into these scriptures. Father, we are grateful for that blessing today of being able to come together around the Word of God. We thank you, Lord, that your Word is apart from man and is and is the governor of man. We thank you, Lord, that, that your presence and your power are made known in your word and so much that as you save us and you seal us by the Holy Spirit of God, that as we get into your word, that beautiful communion that takes place between the Spirit within us and the word of God before us causes such such a harmony, Lord, such a peace that does pass understanding. And so we want to thank you for that and pray that you will just continue to bless us as we grow in our understanding as we grow in our, our knowledge of what God has to say and what you're saying to us. Through Jesus Christ, we give you praise. Amen. All right, guys. Yesterday, a great day going over the, the very concept that Jesus was dealing with. As you recall, backing up into the beginning of the scripture, Jesus has gone to the synagogue and in, in, he's in the synagogues of Galilee. He's he's walked in. He's He's got this man with a withered hand and the, the Pharisees and the scribes are foaming at the mouth because being their own gods, establishing their own rules over the people concerning who God is, what God wants, and the way God works and 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 all of these different things to the synagogue that they would become become gods themselves of the law over man that that when Jesus would come and see this man with a withered hand he would question them is it good to save life or to destroy it and of course they have to say save life because that's the whole purpose behind the religion that they had been leading for for centuries from the time of the captivity of Babylon, trying to give people a sense of hope where they had no hope being in slavery and, and, and captive to the Babylonians and then to the Persians and then to the Greeks, which they kind of got set free a little bit by the Persians and they kind of got left alone by the Greeks, but then under the heavy hand of Rome. So they had to agree with Jesus to save life. And he said, is it is it lawful to do good? or to do evil, and of course they have to say to do good, so Jesus boxes him in with his logic, which is beautiful, and then he heals this man with a withered hand because, one, he's saving his life, and two, he's doing something good. And it's always lawful to do good and to save lives, even if it's a Sabbath day, which is interesting because as soon as he did that, the Pharisees and scribes, they, they, as the scripture said, they were filled with madness and, and they were prepared. They're just looking for a reason, anything, what they could bite their, their hands into to be able to get him and, and destroy him. And so he goes from that place and he, and he separates himself into a, a mountain and he prays all night long. And then the next day he calls his disciples together and from the group he chooses 12. And at that point you have a multitude of people who discover where he's at. They're surrounding Jesus 
And and as they come to him, all of them had received a healing from the virtue that, that was given from him. And in this group, you now have the 12 apostles, you've got the disciples at large, you've got this group of people that have gathered together for, for receiving a healing from Jesus. You've got these Pharisees and these scribes that are just looking for a reason to snare him. And thus he begins the Sermon on the Mount. Thus he begins the, the message concerning the, the connection between those who are poor in spirit versus those who are rich. Those who are, those who are, are, are dealing with, as, as Jesus makes this great, great comparison contrast in the Scripture, the blessings of those who are poor, the blessings of those who are hungry, of those who weep, and the blessing of those who hate you. I praise God for that. <laughs> a blessing of those who hate you and stalk you and and just treat you vilely, even though they don't see it as them doing that. They see it as you being the one that's at fault. Crazy. And then he goes down and he gives a bunch of woes. You have the blessings, but now you have the woes. He says, woe unto you that are rich. Woe unto you that are full. Woe unto you that laugh now. Woe unto you when everyone thinks well of you. And so we see that comparison contrast as being in reference to the the disciples of Jesus and the apostles that are going to have to face the censure of actually serving Jesus as their rabbi, as their master, and the Pharisees and scribes that see themselves as the ones who are being wronged, even though they're the ones that are wronging Jesus, which is interesting. And so he comes down and he talks about loving his enemies. And the reality of loving his enemies is, indeed, Jesus has prayed for those Pharisees and scribes. Jesus had done good to them as far as if they needed a drink, he'd provide them a drink. If they needed food, he'd provide them food. He fed 5,000. He, he's always prepared to receive them if they will humbly come before him. He received Nicodemus. He received Joseph of Arimathea. He's, he's always willing to receive them if they would come humbly before him. But you'll also find that in the love of God as loving your enemies, there is a time where you do have to take a stand, where if necessary, separation is required and, and the differences must be, be dissolved in separation for the scripture says, can two walk together except they be in agreement? Well, a, a disagreement doesn't mean that there's hatred being thrown out, but it does mean that the beliefs are different, that the direction is different, and that the, the desire is different, and so it of necessity must be different paths that are being taken. And so as to say with Paul and, and Mark, you remember John Mark, as he left in the middle of Paul's first missionary journey, when it came from Paul to come back and present the reports of all of the places they'd gone and all the things that the Lord had done through them, when they were being prepared to go on the second missionary journey, Paul said, I ain't taking him. I'll have nothing to do with him. And he ended up going with Barnabas, Mark did, and Silas ended up going with Paul. Of course, you know at the end of, of Paul's life, as he is preparing himself uh, to be executed ultimately by Caesar, he realized that, that there was a time where Paul had called out for Mark to come and bring his coat with him so that you know he could have that time of fellowship and there was that restoration. 
But of necessity, there was that period of time where they had to be separated. And so it isn't that love is just caving in to what everybody else wants. That's ridiculous. That's actually, that's not even loving them. And it's not loving, it's not loving yourself. It's not loving God because that's not the reality. Love does three things. Love comforts, praise God. Love convicts, amen. And love challenges. And and those three things as a reality, uh, we, we don't mind the comfort of love. We, we hate the conviction of love, of course. We hate the challenge of love. But in those times where, as I was saying before, you think you're the one being wronged, but the reality, like if we could back up into reality, is, is that you've been the one causing the wrong to happen. Uh, you'd, you'd have to realize that, that love necessitates that separation because there is no agreement between the directions of, of both parties. It just isn't coming together. And so as to release this, the other party is to love them, to let them go and say, God speed the journey you're going as I go this way, is for the possibility of two different directions being able to be worked in and, and, and God to be able to utilize. And as he teaches this side and as he teaches this side and their separation, in God's time, if he chooses that they come together once more, praise God. And if, if he continues their paths apart, praise God, because it's all to the glory of God. We expect that we have something in this, but we really don't. We, we honor and we obey the, the Lord our God. And so it's very important for us to connect with that. But as he comes down <clears throat> from the concept of loving the enemy, and of course yesterday we talked about judgment, and needless to say, in others' belief of my judgment of them, I come under a severe judgment myself from, from them. It's, it's funny how that works. You know, it, there's a beautiful scripture in Romans chapter number two that says that you are unexcusable who judges another because the judgment that you render to them is the very judgment that you're guilty of. It's, it's really funny how that works. And so when responding to people in comments or when, when receiving comments and, and, and recognizing the judgment of them, it's very funny to think that the very judgment that is being rendered is that which is being applied to, to the individual that wrote. So when you get on Facebook, this is just advisory. When you get on Facebook and you, and you want to write something, you want to respond to someone, uh, just pray about that vehemently. I mean, think about the words that you're writing. Consider the things that you're saying because, one, they can't be taken back. And two, you can reveal a whole lot about your own heart to the other person by the things that you write. And three... Even though you may be considering the things that you're saying as something that is to be loving, you've got to be considering the the way that the other person may receive your words because it could be damaging even though you're trying to be loving. Just advice to be thrown in the garbage if that's what's necessary. But consider those things as Jesus had taught us this beautiful truth in 37. And now we move to 38. 
38 is an interesting point because, again, remember who this, this subject is all about. It's those Pharisees and those scribes. It says, Give, and it shall be given unto you, good measure, pressed down and shaken together. And running over shall men give into your bosom. For with the same measure that you meet, withal it shall be measured to you again. Now, give, and it shall be given unto you. And there's a beautiful truth because he's dealing with these scribes and Pharisees. Now, if you get over into Matthew chapter number 23, just want to go there real quick. Uh, Matthew, let me head over there with you. Matthew chapter number, I believe it's 23. Yes, the seven woes that would be spoken of by Jesus. And and when you get into Matthew 23, it's very important to realize that, that the things you're reading in Luke chapter 6 are applied directly to these scribes and Pharisees, and they are an instruction to his apostles as well as to his disciples to not be this way. As Jesus would say, give. Well, you'll find that Jesus also has to say this about the scribes and Pharisees. In Matthew 23, he begins by saying, The scribes and Pharisees sit in Moses' seat. All, therefore, whatsoever they bid you observe, that observe and do. But do not ye after their works, for they say and do not. For they bind heavy burdens and grievous to be borne and lay them and lay them on men's shoulders, but they themselves will not move them with one of their fingers. But all their works they do, for to be seen of men, they make broad their phylacteries, and enlarge the borders of their garments, and love the uppermost rooms at feast in the chief synagogues, and greetings in the markets, and to be called of men, Rabbi, Rabbi. But be, be not ye called Rabbi, for one is your master, even Christ, and all ye are brethren. Oh boy. So you see, and of course, I encourage you to read uh, Matthew 23 because it's, it's just a fantastic uh, place in Scripture that, that really speaks to the point of what Jesus is dealing with in these places where he's, he's covering the scribes and the Pharisees here in the Sermon on the Mount. But it's also a warning to us all to be able to keep an evaluation of the way that we're walking with God, the way that we're treating God, treating others, the way that we're serving God uh, together as as a church, as well as as individuals within the fields of his kingdom. And so it's very important for us as a, as, as a reality check as to what we have done, what we haven't done, who we are, who we aren't, and why we do what we do. So Matthew 23 is a fantastic point. But he, he says that they, these are a people who are willing to dump all of their load on you, but not lift a finger to help you, and, and a lot of these other things. And so in contrast to that point that, that he is teaching his disciples is to, be, is to be free, is to be open to give, and it should be given to you. Now, a lot of people just assume that Jesus is talking about money here but it's not just money. There are those indeed who are wealthy and have the ability to give money. There's no question about it. But this, in, in more a case, is giving assistance to be able to carry a load when, when a person's heavy and laden. Giving your time to help instruct courses in, in the church or help help assist 
programs in the church or or functions at large giving giving of your heart to a community going to nursing homes together as the church and 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 giving out this love of god sharing the gospel and witnessing to others as you would give to them as you have freely received jesus would say freely give and the point of it being given unto you is that it isn't like god is is giving you a loan for the loan that you gave to him. It's not like I, I I give money to you with an expectation of receiving money back. But if you take your love to a people and, and the people receive that love in Christ, then it, that love will be given back. It will be. As people will will cherish the time that they have with you, and they'll they'll cherish the the opportunities to be with you. As a church family, we should be so thrilled that at the end of the week, of course, looking to that Sunday, we should be so thrilled to be able to come together as the believers in Christ because we we want to come to give. But all too often, church is just something that you have to do, and some, so you show up hoping that you'll be able to take something from it and not give anything to it. You, you'll show up when the, the band shows up. You'll show up when the function happens or when the special event takes place so that you can take everything from it. But but you won't come at any regular time uh, of the year because you don't get anything from that. But that's not church. Church is meant to be something that you come to give to. And it doesn't mean just your tithe. If, if it, it, it means your whole self. You, you're giving yourself to the Lord, to Christ. And as you share that, that blessing of Christ among one another, the church builds, the church grows, the church rejoices. And then God dumps from heaven the blessings that will come down. That beautiful little children's song, the prayers go up and the blessings come down. The prayers go up and the blessings come down. Amen. So give. Give yourself. Give your talent. Give your time. Give your heart to the Lord. And it will be given unto you. Not just just given to you. But given to you in a good measure. That is squished together and pressed down and shaken together to ensure that there's no more room that the blessing could hold and running over. And men shall give into your bosom. It isn't money. It's love. It's working together. It's serving together where you are. You know, it's the funniest thing. I just don't understand it. I, I really don't. You know, in the place that you have a residence, your home, that's where you live or where you've probably lived a very long time. This is the place where God has planted you. This is the place where you are called to serve. And yet in our modern day, we want to drive an hour away to some church, an hour away to, to claim to have fellowship, but there's no work to be done that hour away because that's not where you live. Where you live is where you serve. You know, our ancestors got it 
where they were in community, they built a church because they didn't have the privilege of being able to travel hours away to, to go someplace. They built a church where they were because where they lived is where they served. And, and for centuries, if not millennia, the, the church has always been about its people where it was is where they served. And and we've gotten this concept all the way askew. We've got it off because now that we have this idea of of modern transportation and the ability to go hours or or miles and miles and miles and miles in one day, five hundred miles in a day, that we believe that that wherever we go is wherever we serve, but that's still not a reality. Because as I as I go. Four hours north to Winchester, and I, I I go door knocking in Winchester to come back down to 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 Bedford here, and and someone receives Christ. To whom are they going to turn? Where are they going to go? Who's going to be that consistent guide who will disciple them day by day when they need that help, when they need that hand? Certainly couldn't be me. I'm four hours away from them. But because I don't want to reach out to the people right next door to me, I'll I'll drive all the way up there and just spend time knocking on doors and then hope maybe some church somewhere will take them in. How foolish. Give where you are. Serve where you are. And God will bless it above measure. God will bless it above measure. And by the way, if you're in Manita, I am where you are. Come serve with me. Come serve with me. And if you're if you're not within the local area, find a church in your local area. Unite with that church. Bless that church. Give to that church so that that church can become a blessing even more so than it already has to the people in its community. Where you live is where you serve. So serve God and watch the blessings come down. This is verse number 38. And so he gives a parable. He says, Can the blind lead the blind? (laughs) I love that. Can the blind lead the blind? Shall they not both fall into the ditch? (laughs) Can the blind lead the blind? Now, here's a question for you to think about for a second. If the statement be true that I say all of the time, there are none so blind as those who will not see, then is the blind that Jesus is talking about in this particular case a person that doesn't have the ability to see with their physical eyes? Or is this blindness a person that can't see with their spiritual eyes? I submit to you that Jesus is dealing with those things spiritual and bringing them out through those things physical. And so he's dealing with a people that are blind in their heart that they cannot see the spirit nor the things of God. And so if we indeed be following those who are spiritually blind... What kind of a ditch are we going to end up in? And I hate to say it, but it would be a ditch of self-righteousness that will lead to death. 
And and it's scary to think about that, but the reality is is that all of us have been blind. Now, I know plenty of blind people who are physically blind, but who can see Jesus just fine. And I could tell you that those those people who are physically blind can navigate their way down a street without walking into a ditch just fine. They have learned to compensate by feeling. They've learned to compensate by their their hearing. Their their body has learned to compensate the the minutest details. Uh, They read with their hands in the the language of Braille. I mean, they've overcome this challenge of not being able to use their eyesight because their other sensory organs have become very attuned to the environment around them. And they use a walking stick and they can tell you exactly what you're going to come to before you even come to it. They can hear the slightest differences in in the air between a ditch and the dry ground. I mean, it's, it's baffling how much more they can see even without eyes. It's baffling. And so the point that Jesus is making is the blind leading the blind. Now, Can the Pharisees and scribes truly lead a people into the direction of God? And if this people follow the scribes and Pharisees, will they not both all fall into the ditch? Because the Pharisees and scribes are not teaching the truth of God. They're not teaching the reality of of Yahweh or of Hashem, as they would call him, as being the name. they're, They're leading the people unto their own devices by the law being used to rule over them. And so as gods, they're leading people to themselves to to be pleased. And so they're all going to fall into a ditch because nobody's going to be walking with God. So we find that Jesus' statement indeed is is wise and that he would ask this question as as kind of a jab. There's a jab right there to these scribes, these Pharisees. Can the blind lead the blind? Well, as it is true, uh, that, that would be said. Let me show you another place here. A place, let me get my head straight about where it's at. It's over in John chapter number 9. Let me show you John chapter number 9. It's dealing with blindness. At the end of John chapter number 9, it's, it's a beautiful thing that that is said. Because remember, in, in John chapter number 9, it's dealing with the healing of this blind man. And, and as you go through John chapter number 9, you're going to discover that once this blind man washes at the pool of peace or the pool of Siloam, that, that he's going to have his eyesight back. And, and he's never seen Jesus with his eyes because his eyes didn't work. But he did see Jesus. He, as I was explaining to a young man last night, he saw Jesus. He saw him right here. He saw Jesus. How does faith come by? The scripture in Romans chapter number 10 and verse number 17 says faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. So you see Jesus. And that might not make sense to you quite at the moment. Like that young man started laughing after it began to make sense to him because he realized what I was trying to say because I wouldn't explain it, but I'm, I'm pretty good about doing that, leaving you on a cliff to have to figure it out. But, but the blind man saw Jesus, and then the blind man heard Jesus. It's pretty exciting. I'll, I'll define that. So at, as he's going through this this 
challenge as he's going through the healing and of course the the residents of this neighborhood reported him and the scribes and pharisees oh the holy pharisees they show up and they say okay who healed you and he says this man this guy jesus he came he spit on my face with a clay and he said go wash in the pool of salome i did what he told me to do and now i can see and they said ah curse this man jesus it was god that healed you so how did this happen to you and of course they say it to him three times to try and coerce uh, this man into confessing that it was just god this man jesus didn't really have anything to do with it but it, it wasn't working in their behalf because this guy consistently spoke the same story because he didn't have any other story to fabricate. It was Jesus. And remember that, that we believe what we see, right? We believe what we see. And when he saw Jesus, he believed him. And praise God, he, he got excommunicated from, from the faith, the Judaistic faith, the synagogues, because of his seeing Jesus do this amazing work. And so when, when he's cast out, Jesus heard that this man was cast out and went to look for him. And, and when he found him, he said, do you believe on the, on the Son of God? And, and this, this blind man that saw Jesus at the beginning said, who is he, Lord, that I might believe? He was listening for him. And Jesus said, it is he that standeth before thee, it's, it's me. And, and the guy just bowed down and worshipped Jesus right there. And when it comes to this blindness, and keep in mind in, in John 6 that Jesus is dealing with these Pharisees and these scribes, and it comes to blindness as you're in John chapter number 9, or I should say Luke 6, I think I said John because I'm there. But in, in John 9, it comes to this point where Jesus says, after he has this conversation with this, this man who was born blind, Jesus says, For judgment I am come into this world, that they which see, see not, might see, and they which see might be made blind. And so some of the Pharisees, which were with this guy, or with Jesus, heard these words and said to Jesus, Are we blind also? And Jesus said to them, If you were blind, you should have no sin. But now you say, We see, therefore your sin remains. It's very important to realize these truths that you'll find in these scriptures is that Jesus is, is dealing with spiritual realities when he's talking about things like this blindness. And he's dealing with Pharisees, and his instruction here is really the disciples' guidebook as to how to be and how not to be. If ever you wanted to know how to be a disciple of Jesus Christ, Luke chapter 6 is where you start. It's because it's, it's the basic training manual that Jesus is laying out about how we're supposed to be functioning in this world as his disciples so that others can see him in us. And so he says, don't be blind or be spiritually ignorant about the realities of who I am, what I've called you to do, and who you are before God and me. And so can the blind who believe themselves to be, be godly, to believe themselves to be you know, perfect in every way, to believe themselves ultimately to be gods over a people, can the blind lead 
uh, anybody into the, the path of God? The reality is no. And the people that would follow these false prophets would be the people who would be blind as well. <laughs> so the blind leading the blind, ultimately all that's going to happen is they're going to fall into a ditch. And if you found yourself in a ditch, then separate from the person that you're following and get yourself out of that ditch. Find find a Bible-believing church, a Bible-preaching church. Find find a fellowship that, that is biblical, not on the basis of what the pastor says or proclaims, but on the basis of the Word of God being opened and preached, even when it rubs against the very pastor that's preaching it. That's a good place to be. And if that isn't you, and that isn't where you are, you got the band, and you got the lights, and you got the glitzy screens, and you got all of the amenities, but you don't have that, then you're blind. You're walking in a direction that's going to ultimately get you nowhere. You got to have the Word of God. You got to have the Bible. Got to have Christ. Got to have it. Everything else is optional. But the Word of God is is the centerpiece. And if the place that you're going doesn't hold the word of God at the highest respect, the centerpiece of the whole service, of every service, of every function, then you're just a part of a country club. Just saying. And it goes down, and and he says, the disciple. Now we're getting into the gritty here because we're dealing with individuals. Singular disciple. So this, the disciple is not above his master, but everyone that is perfect shall be as his master. I love that. Everyone that is perfect. Oh, so there's going to be some people that say, oh, look at me, I'm perfect. Yeah, probably not the way this word is meant. So let's look at what this word means. Let's take a look at what the word perfect is signifying here because... The scripture says perfect, and it's very important to, to see that when the, when the Bible says perfect, it means perfect. It's not like you have to say, well, what this is really trying to say is you don't have to go all through those links with you thinking that all have sinned and come short of the glory of God, so it's impossible for anybody to be perfect. If you've ever been around me for any length of time, I could tell you that indeed you can be perfect. And immediately people assume that that the word perfect means flawless or perfect means something that is without fault. Well, it does mean something else as well as concerning the origin language that this comes from. The word perfect in this is actually a, a derivative word. In Greek, it's katartizo, and, and it's a very neat word that, that means to complete. To, to thoroughly complete. In other words, uh, to like my son, when he gets a box of, of, of Legos, right? He, he gets this, like at Christmas time, he got this box. And the, the, the amount of Legos, I don't know, it was like 1,700 pieces or 1,751 pieces or something. And, he, and it's this big pirate ship. But of course, when he gets the box, it's all these little individual pieces, just all, all in different packages all over. And, and when you look at it, it's just, it's just this, this mass of nothing. But as, as he, with his brain, I mean, the, the, the dude's just amazing. I mean, I could never 
honestly do the things that he does and putting these things together one because i don't have the attention span two i don't have the patience and and three he has the eye of what the finished product is before he even begins the first piece and though he looks at the instructions every now and then and he and he looks at the picture it's in his mind that he sees this come together and it just comes together and it's amazing to watch him and and thus it it was not complete it was a bunch of broken pieces at the beginning but he then begins to mold this thing into the ship that it is supposed to be and by the time he's done it's it's got the bells and whistles it's it's, it's perfect not in the fact that it's flawless i mean all i have to do is bump into it and it falls apart pieces fall off and, it, and things of that nature it's not flawless but for what it was meant to be, it is perfect. It's thoroughly complete from the inside structure all the way to the outside structure and all of the mast and sails and everything else that is put together. It's thoroughly complete. And that's exactly what this word means. It, this word perfect means to repair or adjust or to frame or restore. These are all adjectives to the purpose of this word. And so you find that, that that Jesus says that the disciple, of course, can never be above the master. If you're if you are a disciple of Jesus Christ, in what way are you ever going to be above the master unless you see yourself as equal to the master, in which case you've raised yourself above him, which is a scary thought, but is entirely possible for us to do, because we love the idea of being our own gods. And it's the very thing that we fight against the most in our nature as the flesh. But indeed, if we are children of God, if we have chosen the Lord Jesus Christ to be our master, then, then we can be complete in Christ. We can be complete through the word of God. We can be the servant of Jesus. We can be the proclaimer of the gospel, the ambassador like the apostles. We we can be everything that God will want us to be in Christ because he restores us. He repairs us. He adjusts us and he thoroughly completes us. Now that's what that word perfect means. And that changes verse 40 entirely. The disciple is not above his master, but everyone that has been restored by Jesus shall strive and live to be as Jesus, or like Jesus. He shared the gospel, we share the gospel. He loved his enemies, we love our enemies. He chastised those that spoke ill of his father, we chastised those. He, he disciplined his disciples, we discipline each other. You, you, you as Jesus, for you are his disciple, and his word makes you thoroughly complete unto every good work. But is Jesus truly your master? Something you have to decide today as we come to prayer, for I have not been able to get to the beams and moats, but we will do that tomorrow. And what a rejoicing it will be. So, I want to thank you for tuning in today. I pray that this message would, would touch your heart and those which have ears to hear have received what they need in order to be able to go forth from this time sharing the gospel 
and serving the Lord. God bless this request and bless this people as they have come together as one in you at this four o'clock hour and and earlier for the podcast listeners, Lord, we give you praise in Jesus' name. Amen. God bless you, keep you, and cause his face to shine upon you. And until tomorrow, may you be complete in Christ. Take care.